Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Again, it's good to see all of you here at Calvary Chapel. We're going to be continuing in John's Gospel, chapter 18 of John's Gospel. We'll begin reading at verse 19. We're going to cover verses 19 through 32. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Pastor John will slip you a Bible so you can study God's Word with us. Again, chapter 19 of John's Gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament, and we're going to cover verses 19 through 32 of this gospel. We're actually getting close to finishing John's gospel. We're really on holy ground here as we're seeing Jesus go through a series of trials that will lead him to be crucified uh, on Calvary. Um, And then uh, we will see his resurrection. And then uh, we will see Jesus commission Peter to ministry. And now we'll finish John's gospel. It's been a wonderful study that we've been embarked on for the last several months, and uh, what a blessing. And today's going to be a blessing, too, as we continue in John chapter 18. Again, we'll begin reading that verse 19. You recall that in chapter 17 that Jesus, we looked at that prayer that he gave to the Father on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He had lifted up his eyes, and he said that, Father, the hour has come, and indeed, this is the hour, the reason why Jesus came. It was ordained before the foundations of the world that Jesus would come and die for you and for me. So as we moved into chapter 18 last time, Jesus and his disciples had left Jerusalem and crossed over to Brook Kedron and into the garden called Gethsemane, which was just east of Jerusalem, right there um, on the side of a hill called the Mount of Olives. And it is there that we read that Judas, in his act of betrayal, would bring a detachment of troops that is believed to be 600 soldiers with their weapons and torches and lanterns to arrest Jesus. And we saw that Jesus would allow them to take him. And now we're going to see Jesus begin a series of trials. And Father, we come this morning and we desire, as we are on holy ground here, looking at what Jesus did and taking on the cup of suffering and death for us because of our love for us. And Lord, knowing that we would be here on this morning, I pray that we would read this that perhaps we're very familiar with, but Lord, that it would touch our hearts to a greater degree than ever before, that we would just, more than anything, no matter what it is that we're going through in life presently, that we would know that we have a living hope and that, um, that Jesus died for our sins, rose again from the grave, sits at the right hand of the Father, and Lord, that you're with us today. And, um, and Lord, that that living hope that we have would just resonate in our hearts to where there is joy unspeakable, a peace that passes understanding. And Lord, that um, there would be um, just a, a great love for you in your marvelous works, even as we read in the psalm, uh, Psalm 105 this morning, declaring them in our lives and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So you remember that Jesus demonstrated his power in the midst of of being humbled and going to the cross. They came to him, and and Jesus said, who are you looking for, and who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And when Jesus said, I am he, declaring his name, uh, deity, that they all fell over backwards. But they would get up, and he would go willingly as he's taken on the cup of suffering and death. And of course, at that time, Peter, he's there in the garden. He's trying to be brave. He's trying to be strong. He pulls out a sword and cuts off Malchus' ear. He was the servant of the high priest. 
and Jesus would heal Malchus' ear and told Peter, put away the sword. Don't you know, Peter, that I'm going to take and drink of the cup which the Father has given me? And at that time, then the disciples, they all ran away. Jesus is bound up, probably with ropes. He is led back to Jerusalem, back across the Kidron Valley, to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, his home that had a courtyard. And we saw that two disciples are there. Peter is there. He had been following from a distance. He comes in because the other disciple who knew the high priest, and that probably is John, would talk to the servant girl there, and she would ask Peter, you're one of them, and Peter denied the Lord. Now, we know that Peter is going to deny, deny the Lord, as we will see today, two more times. And Peter is there in the courtyard of, of Caiaphas. He's warming himself at a fire. It's a cold spring night. And so as we continue, Jesus going through a series of trials, beginning here, as we're going to read, he stands before Annas. Now we discuss quite in detail, Annas was not the official high priest, but he was the power behind the high priestly office. He was the high priest uh, about 15 years before this time. He was in charge of all the selling of the oxen, you know, the, the sheep for Passover, the sacrifices, and the exchange of money. And Annas had gotten very, very rich from that. And his sons were all, you know, high priests, including Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who was the official high priest at this time. So what we're going to see, that Jesus, that this first trial, that he stands before Annas, this is kind of like a preliminary hearing before Annas, and Annas is very upset at Jesus because Jesus had rebuked the religious leaders in the cleansing of the temple. Back in John chapter 2, in the first year of his ministry, and then a few days before this time, remember that in the Gospels, it's recorded that there were two cleansings of the temple. And in the first one, Jesus would say that you've made my father's house a house of merchandise. The religious leaders and the selling of the sacrifices and the exchange of money were really ripping the people off. They were getting wealthy, which would include Annas and his sons, and Caiaphas being one of them. Jesus rebuked them publicly, and then again a few days before this. So they want Jesus dead. They want him handed over to the Romans. And as we pick up our text, we're going to see that as he stands before Annas, the power behind the high priestly office, verse 19 of John 18, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. In verse 20, 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. So first of all, Annas asked Jesus about his disciples. And notice here that Jesus doesn't say anything about his disciples. And, and many commentators suggest the reason that Jesus didn't is because he's protecting them. He's not going to bring them up. He's going to go to the cross alone. And then we see that Annas asked Jesus about his doctrine. And in this, it really begins to show us the illegality of the trial because the high priest was out of order according to Jewish law. Annas was to bring forth witnesses to testify of the charges against Jesus. But they don't have any clear charges. So he's asking Jesus, hey, what is your doctrine? 
And the reason is, is so that Annas can come up with some kind of charge against Jesus, trying to, to get Jesus really to incriminate himself. And Jesus said, I spoke openly. I didn't speak in secret. You bring in the witnesses, which was indeed the proper order for the high priest to do. We continue in verse 22, and when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Now here's something to, to ponder and just think about, and here is the, the officer, the servant of the high priest who struck Jesus, and there have been some who have suggested, and it's just that, just a suggestion, we don't know for sure, that this could have been Malchus. Now remember Malchus, his ear cut off in the garden. Jesus healed his ear. And uh, here is the officer of the high priest that he is hitting Jesus. So some have suggested that perhaps this is Malchus. And, and wouldn't that be, you know, intriguing and ironic that the one who would receive healing from Jesus is now striking Jesus? But again, we don't know for sure. In verse 23, it's a thought that's kind of interesting. And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So it was unlawful to, to strike an unconvicted person who had not been proven guilty, especially when they were bound up like Jesus is. Now, this is where the sufferings of Jesus begins and then will begin to intense, intensify because Jesus is now leaving Annas and is going to go bound up before Caiaphas, who is the official high priest at this time, according to Rome, and he's going to stand before Caiaphas and the religious council called the Sanhedrin Council, the Jewish Supreme Court. They are made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, John's gospel here will emphasize his trial before Pontius Pilate. It is the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that emphasize his trial before the religious council, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. But as Jesus would stand before Caiaphas, as we read the other gospels and the religious leaders, uh, we know that they would bring in false witnesses, wouldn't they? And the false witnesses would come up with these false charges against Jesus. Hey, he said that he's going to destroy the temple and raise it up again in three days. And we know that when Jesus said that in John chapter 2, that Jesus was talking about his body. Destroy this temple, the temple of my body, and I'm going to raise it up in three days, speaking of his resurrection. And the sufferings of Jesus here really begin to become severe as what they would do is the Sanhedrin council, the high priest, he would tear his clothes. He, he would say that he's guilty. He needs to be put to death. They would condemn Jesus to death. And then they put a, a, a bag over his head. They, they, they covered his face. They began to punch him, to beat him. And they would challenge him by saying that if you are truly the Son of God, then prophesy who hit you. And then they would lower the boom. And here's the thing. When covering Jesus' face that he didn't know that the, the hit, the punch was coming. And it would do 
some very serious uh, damage to him and hurt and, and severe pain to him. When you see the punch coming, you can kind of go with the punch a little bit. But here, they're, they got him surrounded, and they're mocking him, and they're, you know, who punch you, and boom, and, and prophesy. And so he would be black and blue and bleeding from this beating that he received from the religious leaders. And we know that when you go to Isaiah, who wrote about 600 years before this time, Isaiah the prophet would say concerning Jesus' suffering that he was marred more than any other man. We know that he will be scourged, Jesus will, and beaten by the Romans. So he is given over to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin council. He is beaten. And while that is going on, we continue to read in verse 25. Here is Simon. He's on the outside. Jesus is being beaten. They condemned him to death. And there is Peter, Simon Peter. He's warming himself at that fire. As we read in verse 25, he stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he, he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him, whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And, and verse 27, Peter then denied again and immediately a rooster crowed. So Peter ends up doing exactly what the Lord said would happen. When you hear the sound of the rooster, you would have denied me three times, Peter, and even denying the Lord when there was an eyewitness that placed Peter in the garden there of Gethsemane with Jesus. Hey, you cut off the ear of my relative. I know it was you. And Peter, who was so confident in himself in that upper room, you recall that when Jesus was saying that I'm going to go away, you guys can't come with me, and because of me, you're all going to run away and scatter. And it was Peter, in his confidence and in, in uh, trying to be strong, he says, Lord, I'll never run away. I'll die with you if I have to. All these other guys might do that, but not me, Lord. And you recall that the Gospels tell us that it was Jesus that said, Peter, before the you know, night is over, before you hear the sound of the rooster, you're going to deny me not once, but three times. So this has been fulfilled now. And Peter, so sure of himself, has now failed and heard the, the rooster crow twice. As we look at the other Gospels, we know that Peter at this time, when he was denying the Lord, that he was cursing and he was swearing. Uh, and we also know that when he heard the sound of the rooster, a couple things happened. Number one, that in Luke chapter 22, verse 61, you can write it down and look it up if you want to, but Jesus was coming out of the house of Caiaphas. He had been beaten. He's black and blue and bloodied. And the doors of Caiaphas' house swings open. They got him bound up. And, and it says that Jesus looked at Peter just about that time that the rooster sounded. And Peter's cursing and he's swearing. And it says that Jesus looked at Peter. And then second of all, Peter began to weep. He wept bitterly. And when he wept bitterly, that word in the Greek there means that he didn't just shed a few tears, but he wept bitterly. It tells us that it was a heartfelt, deep weeping. Peter at this point thought that he had severed his relationship with the Lord for good. And Peter here is going to learn a very important lesson in his life, a lesson that we need to learn, that in our own strength, it is not sufficient 
for the temptation that will come our way. It is oftentimes, listen, where we think that we're really, really strong and confident and got it together. That's where we fail. That's where we falter. And the reason is, is because we're doing it in our own strength. You see that in the scriptures. You look at Moses. Moses, as the scripture says, was the meekest man on the face of the earth. He was the most humble man on the face of the earth. And where did Moses fail? He got mad at the people. And he took the staff and he struck the rock and he said, must we fetch water for you? And the Lord said, Moses, come here. I'm not mad at the people. What says we fetch water? So Moses failed in, in that area, and he wasn't able to go into the promised land. We know that Joshua, the mighty warrior who brought the children of Israel, finally, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness across the Jordan River, uh, they would go into the promised land. They would do battle against Jericho, and, and it was a great victory. Jericho, a mighty city, and then the walls would come crumbling down. And it was after that that they had another battle against a little village called Ai. Matter of fact, in the Hebrew, Ai means small. And they were defeated at that time. And Joshua began to complain. He, he cried out to the Lord. He, he said, Lord, why did you bring us here in the promised land just to be defeated? This mighty warrior who had such faith was faltering in his faith. When they were defeated by Ai and the Lord said, there's sin in the camp, Joshua, you need to deal with it. Here is Peter, Peter who walked on water. And we're all familiar with that story that's in the Synoptic Gospels, of Peter that steps out of the boat and he walks on the water and, and he began to sink at that point. But it was a lot of courage for Peter, it took a lot of courage for him to step out of that boat in that storm, didn't it? He's the only man beside Jesus that ever walked on water. And here is, you know, Peter, he's walking on water. It took a lot of courage for him to pull out that sword and, and to cut off Malchus's ear. But where did he fail? He was scared of a servant girl. And you see, oftentimes when we think that we got it so together and we're so strong, we end up failing and faltering because we're not giving it to the Lord. I don't need to pray about that area of my life. I don't need to really give it all to the Lord. I got it under control. It's, it, everything's good. Everything's cool. And that could be that way when it comes to our marriage. It can be that way when it comes to um, our occupation, when it comes to our business, when it comes to our ministry, whatever area of life. And even though Peter's courage failed here and because he wasn't giving it to the Lord, he was trying to do it out of his own strength. He, he's trying to muster up that courage, but he ends up denying the Lord, and he's weak, and Peter is devastated, and he messed up, and he knows it, and he weeps bitterly. He thought that God was through with him. He thought that the Lord was through with him, that no more relationship with Jesus, that's over with. The Lord must be done with me, he's thinking, but Peter's going to learn of the unconditional, everlasting love of our Lord. Peter, as we're going to see, I'm not through with you. It's not three strikes and you're out. Three denials and you're out when it comes to the love and grace and mercy of our Lord. In Mark's gospel, on that first Easter morning, when the women came to the tomb, and the stone is rolled away, and the Lord was not in the tomb. It was empty, and, and the angel told them that he's not here. Jesus isn't here. He's risen. And go tell the disciples and Peter. 
that he will go before you in Galilee, and there you will see him. Go tell the disciples and Peter, make sure that Peter, especially Peter, gets the message that Jesus is alive. I want him to know that he's alive, and I will see him in Galilee. And of course, we will read about that in John chapter 21 when we finish this gospel, the last chapter, as he will commission Peter to ministry there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And Peter is restored, and he's forgiven, and Peter, I'm not done with you, not by a long shot. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to love my sheep. And Peter would do that. And it would be a few days after this, about 40 days after this, on the day of Pentecost, he would stand there in Jerusalem and he would preach and 3,000 got saved. And it's true what Jesus would say to Peter, that Peter, I'm going to make you a fishers of men. And Peter, as you know, would become the leader in the early church in Jerusalem and you see that in the book of Acts clearly. He, he was a prominent apostle. Eusebius, the church historian, mentions that in the early ministry of Peter that there would be those who would come around. And when Peter was preaching in Jerusalem, they would mock him by making the sound of a rooster, you know, imitating a, a rooster. And, and Peter, he would keep ministering. And perhaps maybe there's somebody that's here that you think, you know, I've blown it. I've tried to do things in my life and areas of my life where I tried to do it in my own strength and my own confidence and I ended up faltering and failing. And the Lord just must be so disappointed with me or through with me. And there will be those who will come along, unfortunately, and they'll make the sound of a rooster in your ear saying, God isn't going to use you. He's through with you. People will do that. But also we know that the enemy will come along who is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night as Revelation chapter 12 tells us. And he'll begin to whisper in your ear, hey, you're so weak. You're a coward. You're a spiritual waste. You're a failure. And we can forget that God's love remains and his desire for you is to come into his repentance and restoration as Paul would write, brethren, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, if any of you are, are overtaken in a fault, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. The sound of a rooster, what that meant to Peter on this night, this early morning, that it meant that he failed. But the sound of a rooster on this early morning whenever we hear a rooster early in the morning, it signifies the dawning of a new day. And if you have any of those feelings where you feel like, Lord, I've let you down, I, I failed in this area, I'm so weak in this area, you must be through with me. I want you to know something, that God's mercies are new every morning. And His mercies, the Scripture says, are evermore. And He loves you and He desires to want to continue to do a marvelous work in your life. Well, the trial be continues here in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, that they might eat the Passover. And Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Now, a couple things here. First of all, the Jewish leaders had no legal right to put Jesus to death. That right was taken away by Rome. 
So after his trial before the religious leaders, they condemn him to death, but now they're going to have to hand him over to the Romans. They bring Jesus to what was called the Praetorium. It was also called the Hall of Judgment, which could have been the place called the Antonio Fortress, uh, just north of the Temple Mount area. It was built by Herod the Great. You can go and see the remains of it today. And not only was it a place where they kept prisoners, but it was a place where many of the soldiers were stationed. It was kind of like the barracks. And it would be a place where they could react to any uprising very quickly. We see that actually in Acts chapter 21 when the city came and rioted against Paul. Uh, he was accused wrongly of bringing Gentiles into the temple. And the Roman soldiers were able to react very quickly, come down and rescue Paul and put him into protective custody. If, if they hadn't have done that, then Paul would have been killed. But excavations also at Jerusalem show that Herod had built this palace area on the west side of the city of Jerusalem. Now Pontius Pilate, there's no doubt that what he would do, the governor of Judea, is that he would be living in Caesarea, about 60 miles away. There, that city, it was a Roman city, um, and it was kind of the Roman capital of the area. And Pontius Pilate, they found a stone there that was inscribed Governor Pontius Pilate in their excavations. And he would be there, very beautiful place, man, right next to the ocean, the Mediterranean Sea, just gorgeous. He would stay there most of the time. But then he would come to Jerusalem, particularly during the feast, to be nearby in case there was trouble. There was no telephones, there was no emails, there was no you know, you know, webcams, there's, you know, communication that we have today, they didn't have back then. So he would come in case he needed to make decisions if there was any kind of uprising or insurrection or riot that broke out. And Pilate would stay in Herod's palace. Herod the Great, who had died shortly after Jesus' birth. Pontius Pilate, now the governor over Judea, would stay at the palace and it is also pr probably that area where the praetorium is because Pilate went out to meet them. Hey, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, Pilate at this time is really on thin ice with Rome. He, he's politically, uh, historically on shaky ground. And the reason was is because he had done some things that were you know, a mistake. He, he, he made some mistakes, some miscalculations. He's going to continue to do that, as we will see. But when he first began to rule, what he did is he brought Roman soldiers on the Temple Mount area during the feast with flags that they, had, they were carrying with the symbol of Rome, the image of the em emperor. And the people didn't like it. The Jews didn't like it. Hey, this is holy ground. This is blasphemy, so a riot broke out. And so blood was shed. The city was in an uproar for a time. Even some of the Jews went to Caesarea and rioted. So Rome sent a message to Pilate and said, don't do that again. There can't be unrest in this part of the world. Well, later on, Pontius Pilate, he wanted to build an aqueduct to bring water down to the area of Jerusalem. And he went into the temple, took some of the temple money to build this aqueduct. And again, the people got upset. There was unrest and Rome heard about it. And once again, Rome sent a message warning Pilate, quit messing up. So Pilate is on thin ice as far as Rome is concerned, and he's feeling the heat from Rome at this time. 
Another point that I'd like to make in verses 28 and 29. Here it's early in the morning, and the religious leaders make their way to Herod's palace where Pilate was, and they don't want to enter into the palace area because they don't want to tread on ground, which is considered to be unclean. We don't want to be defiled by being in this Gentile place, and we're not able to eat of the Passover. And verse 28, first of all, really shows the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. In their religious piety and arrogance and hypocrisy, they won't tread on, you know, Gentile ground to disqualify them from eating the Passover. And here they are handing over the Passover Lamb of God to be crucified. And that's what happens when you make the law of God and the tradition of man of no effect. So worried about the outward rules and regulations that you miss God altogether. But one more point, and I'll try to explain it very quickly here in the next few minutes, that, that I know that I'll be asked this. Because as we read here, that they wanted to eat Passover. Now the night before, Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples. And here now, these guys are concerned that they'll be defiled and not be able to eat of the Passover. So where do you reconcile the two? Did Jesus really celebrate Passover, you know, the Passover meal the night before? Or was he just having a meal with his disciples? I think that as we investigated a little bit, I believe that Jesus and his, his disciples did celebrate the Passover meal because Mark chapter 14 Verse 12 and 17 and 18, we're told now on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat of the Passover? So the indication is, is that truly they celebrated Passover. So if they pa celebrate the Passover meal, why does John then tell us that these religious leaders had not done so? They don't want to defile themselves so they can eat of the Passover. What's going on? Well, here's some suggestions, and you can do your own study. Some have suggested because of this interruption of having Jesus arrested and the proceedings that were taking place and gathering the soldiers, that they would not have time to eat the Passover, and they would do it the next day. Now, remember in the Jewish calendar, a day starts from sunset to the next sunset. So at sunset, that starts the day. So after sunset, it's Passover, and they would eat of the Passover meal, the next morning is still Passover. So they're going to eat of the Passover. That's one suggestion. Another interesting note is that the Mishnah, which is a, a compiling of writings of well-known Jewish scholars completed in the 3rd century, it tells us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two religious sects of Israel that made up the Sanhedrin Council here, they disagreed about the day of the week in which Passover was celebrated. The Pharisees would celebrate it on the night that Jesus and his disciples did. The, the Sadducees did it the next day. That's one uh, explanation. Others said that there's so many people celebrating this feast that it went on for two days, allowing everyone to partake of it. That's a possibility. Remember that Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that there were tens of thousands of sheep that were sacrificed. So another explanation is that the Jews would celebrate with their Passover meal and at sunset, like Jesus did, and then the next morning they would continue. They had another feast and that would take place the, the morning after the Passover meal was celebrated. And that was all part of the Passover celebration. Now the debate comes in, was Jesus crucified on Thursday or Friday? 
we know that we traditionally in the church, we celebrate or observe Good Friday, right? The day that Jesus died and mundane Thursday where we observe where Jesus had the, the Last Supper with his disciples. Um, here's something to think about. You can do your own study and then we'll finish up. But it is believed that Jesus, of course, would come in on the 10th day of Nisan. When you read about the Passover in the book of Exodus in chapter 12, what the people were to do is to pick out a lamb without spot or blemish, right? On the 10th day, they were to inspect that lamb. They were to watch that lamb till the 14th day. And on the 14th day, then the lamb would be sacrificed and they, that would institute Passover. And then following Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread that they would celebrate for a week. So Jesus comes in on Sunday, the perfect Lamb of God. He's inspected during that week, isn't he? You say, by who? The religious leaders. They try to trap him, trick him, try to back him into a corner. He passes the tests. You know, they, they can't do it. And it is Pontius Pilate that would say that we find no fault in him. Matter of fact, three times we'll read in John's Gospel. Even Judas, who betrayed Jesus, said, I betrayed innocent blood. So he would pass the test. And it is that Jesus is, is believed that perhaps some scholars came in on Sunday, the 10th day of Nisan, and then on Thursday that he would be crucified um, as the Passover Lamb of God. And that seems to fit in with the calendar of what Jesus would say when they asked for a sign. He said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the, in the belly of a large fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, speaking of his resurrection. There are others who are a whole lot smarter than me that say, no, it was Friday that he died on. That the next day, as Luke says, that they were trying to get him in uh, the tomb before the Sabbath. So a debate again, is that the first day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or is it the Sabbath that begins on sunset on Friday? Here's the thing I don't want you to lose as we close here in this discussion about Jesus. Did he die on Thursday or did he die on Friday? The discussion that you don't want to or what you don't want to lose in that discussion is this. He died for us. Amen? And he rose on the first day of the week. And he died for you and for me. You see, they handed him over to Pilate and Jesus was going to die for his sins and for the Roman soldiers that beat him, and for the religious leaders that, that beat him as well. He would die for Peter who denied him, for the disciples who all ran away, and he died for you and for me. And he would cry out from the cross, it is finished, it is done. I paid the price, I've made atonement for your sins. And that's why we come to the communion table to remember this new covenant that we've entered into, the covenant of, of Jesus' death on the cross, his incredible grace coming to him in faith and receiving salvation and forgiveness of sin. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time that we've had together in your word to look at this and to know that Jesus died for our sins. And, and Lord, he cried out, it is finished. And, Father, I pray, um, Lord, that we in this room, that we would all in our hearts um, just have embraced that by faith. And I pray if there's anyone here by chance, maybe that's here that you've never given your life to Jesus, that he died for you, that he loves you so much that he made atonement for your sins because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark and the wages of sin is death. But Jesus, he 
would experience death and taste death for you. So you, you won't be eternally separated from Jesus, from the Father. But you come into right relationship with him as you come in faith, recognizing that you're a sinner and needed the Savior, Jesus. And you can do that right where you're at. You can pray, Jesus, come into my heart. I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I confess I'm a sinner. Forgive me. And I come in faith and I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior because you died for my sins and you rose again. And I want you to sit upon the throne of my heart. I surrender my life to you completely. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me and help me to live for you all the days of my life. And now as the communion elements are handed out, that, Lord, just what we talked about, that Jesus going to the cross for us, that as we hold the elements, knowing that this represents his body that was broken for us and his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin, that we truly would be just be at worship and declaring your wondrous works in Jesus' name. Amen. The ushers are going to hand out the communion elements, and we'll partake of them together.